In March of this year, I was teaching a retreat at one of my favorite places, which I've mentioned before in one of my talks, in the retreat center in uh, New Zealand called Temawata. I've been going there each year, and it's one of the places I really love. It's, if you've been there, it's very, um, very clean, and the skies are very clear. And this one night on the retreat, about four or five days into a 10-day retreat, the, we were realizing that we hadn't seen the moon in a while. And it wasn't because there were clouds in the sky. It was a very clear night. The nights during this retreat were very, very clear. And in, uh, in this part of New Zealand, when the skies are clear, you can see stars like you've never seen. You can see the Milky Way and the uh, black holes in the Milky Way. And it's really, really spectacular. So we kept wondering why the moon hadn't come up. And another night went on and still no moon in this clear, clear sky. And it went on a few more nights. And the people, the staff I was with and the teacher I was with, we started kind of getting very curious about this. Like, why isn't there a moon? And we would go out and we'd look over the horizon and and we were down in a little bit of a valley and there were hills up above and and some of the yogis started coming out and saw us looking for the moon and it became a thing, where is the moon? Five days, six days. It's just, you know, it just doesn't happen like that. And then we started making up stories about the moon, like maybe the moon blew up, or, you know, maybe somebody hijacked the moon, and, you know, or maybe we'll never see the moon again. You know, all these stories, we, we started to have fun with it, we were playing with it. But we, you know, we didn't know, we didn't know what was going on. And then, like the sixth night or something of this, we just saw a tiny, tiny little white point of the moon coming right over the hill. And, and the yogis, a lot of yogis were involved at that point. Like, There's the moon! There's the moon! It was all very exciting. And, and then the moon started coming up just over the horizon a little bit. But I'm mentioning this because, you know, it's like when we, we don't know what's going on, or in our confusion sometimes, we start making up these stories about what's really true. And in this case, we were having a good time with it. But it started to reflect on this is what we do. You know, we start making up stories. And, you know, depending on the clarity of mind and the stability of mind, we could have started believing some of these stories. Like, maybe we would never see the moon again. Or maybe some, maybe it did blow up, you know, or somebody stole the moon or whatever it was. In a way, you know, the moon is a good metaphor here for, you know, the, the potential that we have for ourselves to be awake, to wake up. This capacity, this potential of being an awake person, what that would be like, and Yet, you know, we doubt it. We don't know if it's true. We don't think it's there, you know, this capacity, this, 
this experience of being awake. And then we can make up all kinds of stories about, we don't, not that we can, we do. We make up all kinds of stories about who I am and who I take myself to be and who we are. And we believe the stories and forget that maybe there's another truth or another reality that we may not be able to see right now. I mean, for us, we could have walked up the hill a little bit further, and probably if we got up on the hill, we would have seen the moon. But where we were standing, where we were located, we couldn't see it. And in the same way, so where we're located, we may not be able to see, but yet, does it mean it's not there? Does it mean that that potential, that capacity, that truth of who we are is not, is not real, it's not there? So why is it so hard to know ourselves clearly? And we've talked about this, this is what most of the talks have been about, because until we really are fully awake, our mind is hindered by the forces of mind, of greed, of hatred, of confusion. And these forces become, this, become obstacles to this clear seeing. We get so identified with our stories. We get so identified with what our mind is telling us. We get identified with our views and our opinions, and they seem so real. That's our predicament. That's the human predicament. One of my favorite stories that I heard early on in my practice is the story of of, uh, painting tigers on the wall. Some of you may have heard this. This story of this long, long time ago where this this cave man went into this cave and was painting these beautiful, beautiful pictures on the walls. And in this case, this, this man was painting a tiger. And he was very artistic in the way that he could paint this tiger in a very, with a lot of realism. And just as he was getting to the end of the painting, just finishing it up right at the, maybe the tail, he looked at it and he went, oh my God, it's a tiger, and he ran out of the cave. It was so real, became so believable. And it's the same, I like that story so well, because in the same way we are painting tigers on the screen of our mind. And they become so real, we run. We run away. It's the way it is. And yet, with awareness, with mindfulness, we can begin to look and see, well, what's really true? What's really true about what our minds are telling us about what a formation of a thought is, what an emotion is, what this conception is of, of who I take myself to be? When I was at Gaia House in England doing a retreat one time, I uh, noticed that when I would go into my room, there was a mirror on the wall of my room, and I would, you know, go past the mirror and look in the mirror and, you know, I don't know how, I think women may be a little bit more prone to this. I don't know about men. I, I don't know. I have a sense of men's 
identity around their appearance. But I would look into the mirror, and you know, there'd be kind of this like, oh, you know, kind of this disheartened feeling. And, you know, and then kind of try to ignore it, you know, and then the next time I walk in the room, there was the mirror, and I would look, and this, this disheartened feeling, and it would just keep happening and happening again and again. And finally, I thought, okay, you know, I really have to look at this, look at this view, look at the way that I'm holding this view about this image that's in the mirror that I take to be me. And at the time, I was reading some of the text, and of the Buddha and the Pali Canon, and I found this one wonderful quote um, that I then put up. I took the mirror down and put the quote up <laughs> on the wall. And this is the quote. The quote is from the Buddha. Non-identification has been declared by the Blessed One, for in whatever way one conceives, the fact is other than that. For whatever way one conceives, the fact is other than that. And this is such a profound reflection. Whatever way, it's not just some of the ways. Whatever way the mind conceives, the fact is other than that. And this is a quote, this is a a reflection that I, I really have taken deep into my heart when I start to get caught up in the the solidification of the storylines. Whatever way I'm conceiving, the fact is other than that. I can't know. I can't even imagine. My small little mind cannot make sense of what the reality is. It's a very interesting practice, if you want to do it, to look in the mirror and look and see if you can just look at the image, the color, the shape, the, just the bare image, and then notice the thoughts that arise in the mind in relationship to the image. And you can really start to get a sense of the way the mind projects this conceptual overlay on top of the image, and then that, becomes, that gives shape to the reality of, of, of what happens. Rather than just kind of standing and looking and just getting a sense of what's it like without projecting the conditioned memory or response on top of that image. It's a very interesting practice to do. You might want to try it if you're you're courageous. I've asked people to do it before, and they go, oh, no, I can't do it, I can't do it. Just to see what happens. But what happens is that we often get caught in that conceptual projection, in that conceptual overlay. And there's this wonderful word in the text that you probably have heard, this word papancha. This conceptual overlay is this papancha. And papancha is the the, uh, proliferation of mind. It's the tendency of mind to proliferate issues of a sense of self. It's how we project this sense of self into uh, uh, an imaginary reality, and it becomes so real. It is, we, we really take this up, the sense of I, me. Sometimes papancha is translated as distortion or elaboration or exaggeration. You know, all these 
different ways that the mind can take shape. Another chain of dependent origination, another side, kind of a side chain of the ones that you've, been, you've heard so far, is one like this. It goes, if what one feels and perceives, with the Vedna and the perception, the pleasant or unpleasant neutral, and the perception, when those two come together, this gives rise to a thought, a thought about the perception. What one thinks about, one proliferates. And this proliferation, if it's not seen, is the papancha, or this word that I, I read, this papanchizing. You know, we could papanchize, you know, if this is not seen. If we get caught in it, this becomes our reality. I was, I, being here at IMS, I was remembering some of my past experiences of all the years that I practiced here. And I was remembering the very, very early years of my retreat experience in the first three-month course back in the very early 80s. This, was, this room was quite different. Some of you might know it had a big kind of uh, platform that went all the way out about another 15 feet. Then it had a step down, and it was carpeted with red carpets and and uh, the, the, then the teacher sat up here, and some of the yogis sat on the carpet, and then they sat back, back that way. And I remembered this one time where I was wanting to sit longer after, through breakfast sometimes. And yet the person who was cleaning the meditation hall, who happened to be a good friend of mine, would come in fairly soon at that time and start vacuuming the meditation hall rug, the rug that was here. And I remember getting so angry at him. You know, I'm sitting, 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 you know, trying to sit, you know, like longer. And then all his aversion would rise up. It's like, why is he vacuuming the meditation hall when I'm trying to meditate? I was the only one in the meditation hall, right? I'm the only one sitting there. I'm trying to meditate. He should not be vacuuming the meditation hall. And and then then I, I... I would sit through it, and the next day I would do it again. He'd come in, and he'd start vacuuming. I'd get so angry at him, and it was his fault. He should not be vacuuming. He never, ever considered the fact that maybe I could just get up and leave while he did his yogi job. You know, it was just kind of this uh, self-righteous kind of like, he should not be doing this, and I'm going to sit here until he understands that I'm meditating, and he'll stop that, you know, this whole kind of papancha you know, which in this case took the form of this aversion. And, and maybe you've noticed that aversion wants to find some hook. It wants to find something to hook itself on, like a coat hook, something, well, I'm, I'm feeling all this aversion. I'll be averse at that person because I don't want to really feel this aversion. So it all went on to him, and he was my friend. It was like he should know better, you know, you know I'm trying to meditate. And it's this sense of, you know, if we don't find a hook in the inner world, we can find a hook in the outer world. And all these characters that are all around us, and it's their fault, or it's, you know, they need to change. And, you know, it's this, this not only is the projection about ourself and what's happening here, this papancha, but then the projection goes out to all the other characters, 
And then our world becomes very three-dimensional, kind of holographic, this kind of reality that we're generating through our papancha. And it's not just here, but it's all, it's, it's all around, this, this shape of our mind, really, is what starts to happen. And this can feel even more true because when the thoughts generate the emotions. So it's not just thinking, but the thinking and the feeling come together. And so, so we have this whole kind of bigger experience of papancha. And not just the proliferation, but the way that we engage the emotions, which then projects this sense of reality out. Motions here and then motions out. Papancha is like getting on a train to a destination. And sometimes we like where we're going. You know, that's why we get caught in it a lot. And a lot of times we don't like where it's going. But if we don't really have any way to control that, we're just kind of on the train going wherever the papancha is going. One of my favorite papanchizings in the early years was fantasizing about tropical islands because I never had been on a tropical island. So that was my conditioning was to always want to be on a tropical island. How many people have been on tropical islands in the last couple of weeks? I don't know if that's your particular favorite fantasy. I'm sure you have other destinations that you've arrived at. But I liked this fantasy so much that I actually manifested it in reality. So I wound up on a tropical island. That's what can happen, you know. We have to be a little bit careful about our papanchas because we actually may arrive in reality at the very place that we are imagining. So I arrived at this tropical island. This was about 12 years ago, the first time. Uh, Koh Tao and the uh, uh, islands of Thailand. And, you know, I had my fantasy, my, you know, my papancha with it, but until it was, until I realized what the reality was, which was that it was May, and it's very, very hot at that time. And within uh, five days or so, I wound up getting dengue fever, which is you get bit by a mosquito and this very, very high fever happens. And people die from dengue fever. I was very, very sick. So not only was my, my fantasy turned out to be very unpleasant in terms of the temperature, but then I almost was died in, my, in reality. Fortunately, I was able to, to come out of it without, uh, without too many consequences. But... The reality is very different than our imagination. The whatever way we conceive it, the fact is other than that. We, can't, we don't know. It's just a story in our imagination until it becomes a reality. In Buddhist psychology, um, points to what's called three springs of papancha which are called three obsessive views that are governed by the torments of our mind, greed, hatred, confusion, which give rise to this misconception of self. 
which support this way that the mind embellishes and conceives experience. And these three springs are me, mine, and I am. Me is Sakaya Ditti. This means this personality view or identity view or a view of a, of a permanent self or a, a solid, a separate self. It's a, a wrong view when we believe this to be the way things are. Mine, the second obsessive view, is the tanha. It's the clinging. This is mine. This is mine. I'm going to talk a little bit about each one of these. When we cling to the conditions that are arising and passing as myself. And the third is I am, which is mana or conceit. This uh, building up of I. I am. I am this. I am that. Mm-hmm. In Western psychology, this is simply called ego. This is what we call ego self. And one of my teachers, Hamid Ali, defines ego this way. He says, ego ego is a psychic structure that is based on crystallized beliefs about who we are and what the world is. And these beliefs are formed very early in our childhood and they're reinforced over time through the through the uh, continuation of the identification in those uh, beliefs. And this is what gives rise to a particular identity of who we take ourselves to be. In the Buddhist teachings, uh, traditionally, there are five crystallized beliefs or five processes that make up our life of these, what's called the five aggregates or the five skandhas, which when we cling to them, it's who we take ourselves to be. This is what gives formation of the sense of self. I take my body to be myself. It's one of the, we cling to the body as self. I take my feelings to be myself, or the Vedana. I take my perceptions to be myself. I take my conceptions to be myself, the mental activity, the thoughts, the images, which lead to the emotions. I take consciousness to be myself. This is what gives this formation of the Sakaya Ditti, the identity view, the, the, the personality view. This is who I am. This is mine. This body is mine. These feelings are mine. These perceptions are mine. Consciousness is mine. But the Buddha, in, you, in different places in the text, is a wonderful kind of refrain where the Buddha says, this body is not myself. These feelings are not myself. Perceptions are not myself. Conceptions are not myself. Consciousness is not myself. These are simply five crystallized beliefs that we cling to that gives this sense of me. This is tanha, one of the obsessive views, the clinging 
But it's important to really understand here that the Buddha did not say that these conditions do not exist. The conditions of body, the conditions of feelings, of perceptions, of conceptions, of consciousness. It's not that they don't exist. They exist. They're real. What we are asked to, invited to do, is not to cling to them as mine, as me. And, and we have been talking about the why. Why not cling to these things? Because clinging to these beliefs are limiting. They're very narrowing, and they cause suffering. When we, when we identify ourselves in this way, it gives rise to our suffering. And it interferes with the revelation of the truth. It limits our, our clear seeing. We can't see clearly because we're, the identification becomes an obstacle to that clear seeing. There was a yogi uh, last week who came and reported an experience that she was having. It was after Sally introduced the standing meditation. And she came in and she talked about the experience for herself of doing the standing meditation. And she said that when she first started doing it, she hated it. She just hated it. It was very hard for her to stand and to actually feel her body. And it made her very, very upset because she had said that she had actually done a lot of work around being in her body and feeling her body. And it really upset her and frustrated her that this was coming up again. Why is this here? I've done so much work. This should be done. It should be over with. But yet she stayed with the mindfulness. She stayed with the awareness. She really wanted to look and see what was true. And when she really felt what was happening, there actually wasn't that much there in reality. There wasn't. It was more of a mental conception. It was more of an idea that was overlaying her experience, but when she really brought the, the attention right down through into the conditions of the body, there wasn't that much there. She said it was just a tendril of the past. It was just a shadow of the past. And it changed her whole relationship. She said, it's not what I thought. And she had a much more balanced view. She said, now I know that I'm actually not done. There's a little bit more work I have to do, but it's just the way it is. There's no kind of emotional charge around it because of the the disidentification with the conception of what was actually going on. And I think you can see in your experience how sometimes the the idea comes so comes in so quickly from the past about how you imagine the experience is going to be, whatever it is, whether it's about lunch or it's about another yogi or it's about a pain in the knee or some, you know, some uh, memory that's arising and there's, no, not that, or it's going to be like this, or I don't want to go there. I mean, whatever we start to imagine about it, but when we really start to feel and sense and look directly it's often not what we imagine it to be. The difference between being caught in the imaginary reality of our conceptions and coming into the direct reality or the bare experience of the bare contact of our experience to see what's actually happening, what's there.
this is how we begin to unhook from the past conditioning, from this sense of that this this what feels so solid about who we take ourselves to be. In this case, the body is not the problem, just the way we are relating to it or the way she was relating to it. In the same way, our thoughts or our mental activity are really not the problem either. It's like we can so easily start to think that, well, I just have to stop this you know, thinking <laughs> or just this conceptualizing and then I'll be fine. But that isn't it either. It's not that we have to stop the thoughts or stop the pattern of thinking. I mean, the thinking is actually a gift that we have to be able to navigate and negotiate our world. The problem is when we take our thoughts to be the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. We cling to our thoughts about our intelligence, about our attractiveness, about our age, our physical well-being, our emotional stability, our spiritual progress. I mean, we can cling to all kinds of thoughts. I noted just uh, six, seven months ago, I noticed that I started to form a thought around my memory, that I was not remembering things in the way that I used to, that I am really forgetful. And this, I could see how this whole identity was starting to form around myself, that uh, something was wrong with me and I'm losing my mind, and, you know, whatever kind of thoughts can start to form around that. It's just sometimes I just wouldn't remember. Didn't have to make a big deal out of it. You know, and just that recognition of having a different relationship to it. One time a yogi came in for an interview and just said, you know, maybe I'm just... Maybe I really am just a miserable person. You know, maybe that's what I'm discovering about myself. And, and maybe what motivates me is because I really am a miserable person. You know, that's who I am. We can characterize ourselves around one thought. And I'd just to, for you to reflect on this just now about yourself, if, if there's one thought that you seem to pick up or you easily pick up. You know, I'm not a very good yogi. Nothing spectacular is happening in my practice. Today I was thinking that if we did group interviews, that would be a very popular comment that would be made. You know, nothing spectacular is happening in my practice. <laughs> you know, or the opposite. My practice is going really great because so many spectacular things are happening, you know, which is just another, just something else to get identified with. Mm-hmm. Or another, other people seem to really understand this meditation so well because of the kinds of questions that people ask in the hall, and I don't understand it at all. You know, just kind of another way, sort of building up this self-image or this identity. I wonder if we really can evaluate our practice very well. Are we the best people to evaluate? Do we know really? I mean, what are we listening to? We're just listening to the same old tape. 
And then we think that we can learn something from the way our mind is telling us about our practice. I think that's one you could let go of. My teacher told that to me a long time ago. Don't evaluate your practice. (laughs) So just consider for a moment if there's a thought about yourself that you're wrapping your identity around while you're here. Maybe just in today or in the last few days. Anyway, you're starting to believe an identity, a view, an identity view. Clinging to these thoughts are what holds the structure of me together. This is what it holds, this is what holds it together. So this tanha, clinging. The third one, the, the sakya ditti, this personality view, then tanha, the clinging, the third one of conceit, omana, I am. And I just want just take a note as I start to talk about this. If there's any kind of a response within yourself about exploring whether you're conceited or not. Because conceit can have a charge. This word conceit has a bit of a charge to it. We don't want to be thought of as con- conceited or having conceit. You know, not, not me, I'm not conceited. You know, it can easily start to happen that we want to push this one away. Conceit is when there is pride, when there is superiority or arrogance in the mind, some way that we can elevate ourselves or single ourselves out as different or make ourselves special in some way. We can feel superior about our appearance, about our class, about our gender. You know, women are better than men, or men are better than women, or whatever. We can feel conceit around our color of skin, uh, what we own, uh, our religious status, about anything. And it's these things that give rise to so many problems in our world and really what drives our world in a very fundamental way gives rise to racism and religious wars, homophobia, issues around our age and our youth and our beauty and our wealth. It's endless what this view gives rise to and what, how it conditions and, and propels this energetic force into the world. And we can really feel when we are caught in these views how these can drive our ambitions and our, our desires. They're, it's so self-centered or, or ego-driven. That's how we can feel and sense this word of ego, ego-self. 
when I was, and this it starts very, very young for us. I, when I was uh, 21 years old, just kind of out, just kind of finishing college, and just trying to find myself and who I was in the world, and uh, trying to locate myself in some way. I had a brother who was three years older than me, and he, and so I consulted with my older brother. You know, how do you? How how do I? You know, find myself how do i i i move forward in the world and he said to me you got to get yourself an identity first thing you have to do be somebody who's different who's unique who's unusual and so i took his advice you know i thought my brother was wise so you know at that time i had kind of dark brown hair, so I dyed it blonde, and I wore uh, black turtlenecks, and I became an artist, and I walked around with a big black portfolio under my arm, and, you know, I was an artist, and, you know, jeans, blue jeans, and really fit the image, and that was, you know, okay, this is my identity, until I really realized that I wasn't actually that good of an artist. (laughs) That was hard. That was that was hard to take in because I you know to really hold up the identity I needed to be a good artist but you know <laughs> it just wasn't holding together as well as I'd like and that really was hard I could just feel it crumbling like oh what am I going to do now <laughs> you know if I'm not really an artist like then where's my identity and who am I and I could just feel this kind of my ground just so. Uh, unsteady and, you know, so unreliable. Like, who am I? What am I going to do? How do I move in the world without an identity? But not having the wisdom, not having the understanding at that time, still looking for something to hold on to, somebody to be, somebody to become, conceive myself in some way. And you can see how when we come to our spiritual um, practice and our spiritual path, we can just transfer that pride onto our, onto our meditation and it becomes spiritual pride or spiritual conceit. I remember in um, the early days when I was in India and I was with my teacher, Punjaji, and you know it was really a wonderful time and having some very good experiences and some very deep insights with him and then just starting to feel so special. You know, and then, you know, being able to be a little bit more in the inner circle with him. And, you know, I'm just so special, and I really understand, and I really got it. And, you know, just a, which I didn't know at the time, that I was just, a, you know, t- taking up another position of ego, of conceit, until a little later when you look back, and oh, yeah, there it is again. So insidious. I can see that what happens is that we idealize these certain attributes that we like, you know, light and open and happy and compassionate, or whatever it is in this case, and then cut off the ones that don't fit that image. You know, it's like, I want to be this, I don't want to be that. And it's just another way of splitting off. The ego just gets constructed in a particular way, And we deny and suppress and pretend certain aspects aren't there. And they just go underground. They just get hidden away, compartmentalized. Until 
with our mindfulness and our awareness, perhaps we can bring that forth again to look more completely at who am I, what's going on here. Oftentimes those, that construction of conceit is built upon deeply hidden ideas that we are nothing or somehow we're wrong or bad or evil. And then we have to build up this whole other structure of who we think we are. And all that just gets hidden. Jung called this the shadow, you know, the shadow side, the shadow, how it just gets put aside. Maybe, maybe for some people never to be looked at at all. Here's a story that exemplifies spiritual pride. One day a rabbi, in a frenzy of religious passion, rushed in before the ark, fell to his knees, and started beating his breast, crying, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. The cantor of the synagogue, impressed by this example of spiritual humility, joined the rabbi on his knees, saying, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. The shamus, who's the custodian, watching from the corner, couldn't restrain himself either. He joined the other two on his knees, calling out, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. At which point, the rabbi, nudging the cantor with his elbow, pointed at the custodian and said, Look who thinks he's nobody. (laughs) This building up, even building up, I'm nobody. Anything, anything we can build up. And the other side of this conceit, you know, if you might be sitting and thinking, well, I don't really elevate myself. But the other side of this is making ourselves small. Thinking of ourselves as as limited and small, which is really another form of conceit. But still, I am. I am worthless, or I am a victim, or I am. It's still another way that the belief crystallizes around the sense of self. This comparing and the judging. We separate or we cut off in a negative way, which keeps us feeling small and, and contracted in this view But if it makes you feel any more comfortable, it's always good to know that this fetter of conceit doesn't drop away until very advanced stages of awakening. So if you're feeling like this, some of the things I've talked about might be resonating with you in some way, be careful not to judge yourself or to form another view about yourself, like, oh, I am you know, really caught in conceit. It's just another I am. So you can watch that thought. But this is really, it takes a long time for this one to work through, this sense of I am someone. This is an example of this freedom from the I am, from Shantideva, an 8th century Buddhist philosopher. Even when I do things for the sake of others, no sense of amazement, or conceit arises. It's just like feeding myself. I hope for nothing in return. Just like feeding myself. This beautiful flow of expression 
of kindness, compassion. And clinging to this tanha, this is mine, and the conceit of I am, this is what gives rise to the third obsessive view of sakyaditi. So these three views of tanha, mine, uh, conceit, I am, and the sakyaditi, this uh, personality view or identity view that we can solidify around. When we're talking about personality or self in this way, we're really talking about our habits of mind or sankharas, these these conceptual frames of mind that get reinforced through repetition. The way that our mind inclines in habitual ways, patterns that we set in motion over time. And it's these habits that build up the entire construction of our self-view or even our worldview. And without awareness and mindfulness, we don't really know what we're building up. And there's really very little room to do anything differently. We're just caught in the habit. That's why the mindfulness is so important, because it can begin to break up this construction of the way that we hold it. We start to poke holes in the construction. So it's not quite as solid and as real and believable in the same way. Awareness is what brings the self-understanding. We're not trying to deny the personality in any way whatsoever. We have personalities due to conditioning from the time we were born and all the influences and all that that has impacted us over time gives rise to our personality. So the personality isn't so much the problem as the way that the, the view forms around it, which, gives, which is held together by the clinging, by the confusion. We're really asking the question, who am I when I'm not bound by these habitual egoic patterns of mind? Who am I? Who am I then? What gets expressed then? What comes through then? This is from Ajahn Sumedho, one of our elders, his practice on working with uh, personality. I used to make it a practice to play with personality rather than merely trying to let go of it. To think I've got to get rid of my personality and not attach to my emotions is one of the ways we grasp the teachings of the Buddha. Instead, I would become a personality quite intentionally so I could listen to and observe this sense of me and mine. I would practice, I would practice bringing up thoughts. Me? What about me? Don't you care about me? Aren't you interested in what I think and how I feel? And these are my things. This is my robe. These are my possessions. This is my bowl. This is my space. This is my view, my thoughts, my feelings, and my rights. I am Ajahn Sumedho. I am Mahatera. I am the disciple of Longpocha. And on and on like that. He'd actually let it come up. This is what makes me an interesting person, a person that has titles and is respected and admired in society. I would listen to that. 
I would listen not to knock it down or criticize it, but to recognize the power of words and how I could create myself. Beautiful. I would listen because he said, I want to know how I create this sense of myself. And he says, as I did this, I would more and more find the refuge in awareness rather than in the conditions of my personality, rather than in the fears or self-disparagement or megalomania or whatever else happened to be operating in consciousness. He was seeing with wisdom. So we're not trying to erase the personality, just to see it for what it is, a conditioned realm that is always changing. It's always changing. How many times have you changed today? How many times have you changed in the week, in the month, in the year? Who are you? Who do you take yourself to be? Mindfulness is what breaks up the identification. When we ground through the breath, through the body, we know what's happening with our thoughts, our feelings, emotions, sensations. Knowing, this is what brings the self-understanding. We watch the attitude of our mind, whether we're clinging or whether we're resisting, pushing away, cutting off. Holding on, building up. We can know this. We can see that the conditions come and go. They're not solid. Not permanent. This beautiful refrain in the Buddha's refrain in the Majjama, Nikaya, where he says, Seen as it actually is with proper wisdom, this is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. Over and over and over again, this is repeated. This is not mine. Body, feelings, perceptions, conceptions, consciousness. This I am not. This is not myself. Who am I when I am not bound by these habitual patterns of mind? This is from the Dhammapada, uh, verse 3, which is Gil Fronsdale's translation. The mind, hard to see, subtle, alighting where it wishes, the sage protects, the watched mind brings happiness. The sage protects. Watched mind brings happiness. When things start to break up, and the identification begins to break up, sometimes this can become quite scary. We can feel like there's nothing there, or nothing to hold us as we start to touch the empty nature of self. And this can be hard sometimes. And it's really a time when our faith in the teachings and in the practice, in the teachers, really needs to be quite intact. Because we need the faith as this breaking up of this identity view begins to happen. 
And this isn't only at a certain stage of our practice. This can happen at many different stages of our practice because there's many, many different dimensions and kind of layers of this construction of, of how self gets formed. And we hit it in different ways at different times. And yet we have more and more resources to support us and more wisdom and understanding to hold us as this begins to happen. And at other times, when the momentum of me slows down, what we can find can be quite surprising. What we may find is that we actually experience more space. That we start to feel more open. Things start to open up. The breath starts to become more free. We breathe more freely. or The five senses become more alive. There's more Contact with sights and smells and tastes, there's a kind of an aliveness or vitality that begins to, we begin to come into contact with. The, the conditions of the five skandhas are still there. There's still a body, there's still feelings, perceptions, conceptions, consciousness. But there's not a problem, it's not a problem. <laughs> the formations, still there. Even a sense of me. This meanness is still there, but there's a kind of lightness or a sense of less solidity, less separateness. And we're not empowering the habits in the same way. Poking holes, awareness starts to feel like there's some gaps in this habitual sense of self. And it's this this which allows for something wholly new to shine through something very surprising, very unexpected when we we aren't caught in the old conditioned ideas. Something very new can come through. Teacher Sokni Rinpoche says, with mindfulness, the string of thought that ties confusion together is suddenly no longer tying anything together and the confusion naturally falls apart. Nothing's tying it together anymore, which is the clinging, the identification. And he says, the qualities of the heart are the afterglow. The qualities of the heart are the afterglow. One yogi came in the other day and said, in this reflection, in this connection with this truth, she said, you know, I don't have to respond with faith. Faith is here. I don't have to respond with compassion. I am compassion. Compassion is here. I don't have to do anything with it. I don't have to make it into anything. It's already here. I don't have to carry it. It's here. This revelation that this is what's flowing through. You remember my other talk, I said, we don't have to... Carry all this. Take the luggage off your head. You're already on the train. Let go. Open up. It's here. But until we know this, we practice. We practice compassion, metta, faith. We practice patience until patience is here. We know patience is flowing effortlessly, spontaneously, Until we are respectful of what we see in our experience, we practice respect. We practice kindness. 
until we know that's here. And as the force of identification gets weaker and the eye is not so demanding, we begin to smell the perfume of selflessness. The perfume, this beautiful aroma of selflessness in this space, in this boundless space. Tanisaro Biko says, self-identification ultimately dies away, and what is left is limitless freedom. Let's sit for a moment. The mind, hard to see, subtle, alighting where it wishes. The sage protects. The watched mind brings happiness. So remembering as you're getting up and doing your walking, you don't have to get rid of anything. You don't have to get rid of anything. Just know what's there. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.